0: You are listening to 89.5 FM KOPN Columbia, Mid Missouri's source for in depth news, diverse talk, and music of the world. It is so much more than radio. It is your community radio on the web at kopn.org. And this is Speaking of the Arts. Good morning and welcome to Speaking of the Arts, Mid-Missouri's only in-depth weekly art show. My name is Diana Moxon and I am so happy that you are here with me. Back in April, $75 million was appropriated through the CARES Act for the National Endowment for the Arts, with 40% of that awarded directly to state and regional arts agencies and the remaining 60% in direct grants to non-profit arts organisations. In an uncertain world, it was certainly better than nothing, but it pales into insignificance when you look at the actual financial contributions that the arts makes to the economy. According to the National Endowment for the Arts latest report, in 2017, arts and culture contributed $877.8 billion to the nation's gross domestic product. The sector employed over 5 million waged and salaried workers who earned a total of $405 billion dollars. Collectively, we spent $26.5 billion on admissions to performing arts events. How does that translate for Missouri? Well, here, arts and cultural accounts for over $10 billion, or 3.3% of the Missouri economy, and employs over 92,000 people. So going back to that relief package for the arts again, here in the United States, it was $75 million. Consider then that in the UK this month, the government put forward an arts rescue package of £1.57 billion, which is about $2 billion. Meanwhile, in Germany, the federal parliament approved a fund of just over $1 billion, in addition to the support the arts received from regional legislatures. France has committed $5.8 billion towards the arts, and the Netherlands with its population of just 17 million, pledged almost $700 million to protect its cultural life. Around the world, the performing arts remain shuttered and whilst relief packages are welcome, the devil is in the details. The concern is for the armies of freelancers who are the backbone of the creative industries, most of whom are not in direct line to get government relief packages. But yet it is they... The actors, artists, stage managers, technicians, sound engineers, composers, who make the work that we all pay to see, they are not the institutions which will receive the money, many of which are likely to use those funds simply to save themselves. So, 75 million across the entire United States does not go very far especially when you consider what the arts proffers not only in dollars and visitor numbers but in the solace and joy the provocation and education the sense of self and the shared sense of humanity that it provides and in that the arts are truly priceless but i digress on with the show my guest this morning has danced on Broadway, directed and choreographed in London's West End, was an original cast member in the first national tour of the musical review Fosse, has worked with dance luminaries such as Elliot Feld, Anne Ranking and Twyla Tharp, and has been teaching at Stevens College since the beginning of 2018. It is a delight to welcome dance director, ballet master and Stevens College artist in residence, Darren Gibson, to Speaking of the Arts. Good morning, Darren.
1: Good morning to you.
0: Well, I want to start by taking you back in time. We're going to go back to an elementary classroom in Queens around 1980. You are 10 years old. And one day some folks turn up in your classroom and ask, who's interested in trying out for free classical ballet classes? (laughs) What what was going through your 10-year-old mind as you listened to them talk about dance classes?
1: Absolutely not. (laughs) And specifically, it was ballet and the answer was absolutely not. No way.
0: Because why? Because it was something that girls did, or
1: <laughs> that, absolutely. That's exactly right. That was exactly right. And for me, it, it was just uh, shining a light and saying, "Hey, come, come attack me some more." And actually, all of the boys sat out. So. We were not going. We were not auditioning at all. That was not going to happen. They had to come back and beg us to at least go downstairs and give it a shot.
0: So what what changed your mind?
1: It was myself and another guy. And we, we talked and we were like, um, if we do it, we know that we could get the other guys to do it. And we were like, okay, let's just go and do it and it'll be fun. Why not? And, and the woman was lovely, uh, Linda. Linda was absolutely lovely. And so we went down downstairs and the rest, as they say, is history. I was not expecting anything from it.
0: But you must have been kind of curious because, I mean, you did end up talking, you and your pal, into going downstairs. Was it? Did you think, well, we can get out of class this way? Or were you like, well, maybe it's something I want to do?
1: Well, you know, there's something, even when I think back to my friend, was you're thinking, you know what, something is telling me to go ahead and just give it a shot. You know, we're that kind of curious bunch that we're like, let's just do this.
0: So, you went downstairs and you auditioned and you got taken on mm-hmm. and you went off to have classes. Do you remember at what point in your early dance career that you thought, yes, this is my journey in life?
1: Oh, absolutely. It was a summer and it was the summer that the class was introduced to Christine Sari. And uh, she was Elliot Fell's muse and basically the first Prima Ballerina. And she was just delightful and exciting. And she spoke about starting her career at 16. And to me, that was exciting. And I was very much of a mindset that that's what I wanted to do. And um, I only had, what, a year and a half left to make that happen and by golly I was going to do exactly that I mean she was really inspiring um, which is it's a great story and uh, hopefully we'll touch on it Um, our relationship Christine Sari, and uh, my relationship is quite an interesting one but um, she did inspire me yes
0: well go ahead and tell us about your relationship with Christine Sari.
1: Well, one of the things after being inspired by her, I did do that. I ended up joining the company at 16. I became an apprentice around 14 and a half to 15 years old to the company. And then at 16, I signed my contract and joined the company. And with that, she came on tour and we actually danced together. And um, I never really thought that she liked me (laughs) at all. And I've always felt that there was, you were not my favorite kid anyway. I don't know how quite you got to where you got, but you did. And the last time that we danced together, it, it did not go well. I did not do my best performance. It was the first time that I traveled and then had to do a matinee. And I was not at my best the first time that I was not at my best. And it it became a really big thing. And I was called into the office with Elliot Feld and he laid into me and I said to him, quite frankly, I'm a child. And this is the first time that I've experienced this and no one was guiding me. And that speaks for my teacher as well. So I was going through this experience without any guidance. And I made a comment about it being quite difficult. And and I, people took that to be me being a diva and that I didn't want to do a matinee because I looked down at doing the matinee. And it had nothing to do with that. It had to do with the fact that I was not prepared for it, and I didn't have that skill set. And when I said that to Elliot, his whole demeanor changed. And, you know, he, he said to me, you're right, and you actually do not have friends, and you will be going at this alone. And that's not the first time that I heard that. I have heard that from other teachers of mine. It was a very ominous, you know, kind of foreshadowing that I would be alone. And they were right. It was something that I journeyed because other adults around me did not know what, uh, what I was going through. They had no idea and could not offer any support. And so I did most of my growing up and learning alone and very quickly. I get it from my mom. I have a great survival sense. That's something that she taught me very early on.
0: What did they mean by you were going it alone? I mean, you're in a ballet school surrounded by other ballet dancers and mentors. Why were they telling you it would be a lonely experience?
1: Well, number one, I am African-American Black. So that alone sets me apart from everybody because not very many Black men or women were doing ballet. So that alone was something completely unique. The school was new. I was the first. So they had no experience in, you know, having a 16 year old leading a ballet. It's a different kind of experience, I should say, because 16-year-olds did join companies, but usually they had their parents or it has been done before and they kind of knew what to say to a prima ballerina. There were other prima ballerinas that were extremely young. Here it is that I am a Black young male, and I am the only one. So what could you possibly talk to me about during that journey? You know, it's uncharted territory.
0: So tell us a little bit about Elliot Field and his new ballet school, because it really only started in the late 70s. And so, yeah, you were a very early person to be part of the school and then, as you say, go on and be part of the actual ballet program. What's his background, Elliot
1: Field? Elliot is a trained ballet dancer and he studied at the School of American Ballet Theatre, SAB. and um, he really got his start uh, doing the prints at some point for the Nutcracker, uh, New York City Ballet's Nutcracker, which is my favorite Nutcracker of all time. And um, he studied there, choreographed his first ballet, Harbinger, for American Ballet Theater. And um, from there, he did a second ballet, which is at midnight, And after doing those ballets, he started a company of his own and started to choreograph. That company folded and then began a new company, and that one lasted for uh, quite some time.
0: So the story goes that I think he was sitting in a subway car one day with a class of boisterous elementary school children in the late 70s. And he kind of had this aha moment of these elementary school children were a fabulous resource for the future world of dance. And so that's when he started coming out to the schools, or his people did, and and you got involved. And if you flash forward to 2020, the school, which is now called Ballet Tech, they audition around 30,000 public school elementary children every year and then choose 500 to participate in a six week free program so if you look back over the last 41 years that works out to something like 900,000 children (laughs) have been auditioned and through this program that's just so phenomenal
1: (laughs) yeah it's pretty impressive (laughs) yes and and that's exactly right he you know he was sitting in the train car with Cora Khan and the he's like that's untapped talent right there. And, you know, he was right about a few things. I would see ballet on Channel 13 PBS in New York City, you'd see it and either you'd stay on the channel or you'd flip by. But, you know, I had no idea that I would be interested in doing that. And that is why he wanted to do that was to expose New Yorkers. You know, uh, New Yorkers, first and foremost, it really didn't matter what your race was. Uh, It was, these are, are individuals that may have talent and they have no idea that they have talent or that they could possibly go into dance in any capacity. So why not expose them to it? So everyone in my class had talent. You know, everyone in my class had a beautiful body and just about every one of my classmates had beautiful feet, including the boys, with the exception of me. I had the <laughs> worst feet. Um, which is funny because I worked on those too.
0: Yeah. <laughs> one of the things that a lot of artists talk about, whether they're, you know, female or minority, or whatever they are, they say the absolute profundity of giving children the chance to see someone who looks like them on the stage or in any workplace that is just makes a profound difference when they think, Oh, that, that person looks like me. I could do that. So thinking back to when you were a child and you were saying, you know, you, you felt so alone and they were telling you, or you were so alone. Who were your inspirations?
1: Uh, <laughs> that's, uh, that's fascinating. My inspiration comes not by the way of dance and Believe it or not, it, it, it makes sense if you, hopefully we'll get to meet in person. And when we do, it'll make sense to you. <laughs> but that person would be Diana Ross. And I can hear everyone in my life nodding and saying, that's exactly right. And there was something about Diana Ross as an artist that just transcended the color of her skin. There was something about her sound, her look, all of it, that just made people comfortable, that just made people love what she did and appreciate her and love her. I I often look at her and say she's the perfect vehicle for that time to move everyone forward. And, you know, regardless of what people think about whether or not this or that, she had everything, all of it, the hard work, the talent, and the ability to be versatile when need be. And that was inspiring to me. And and that is something that I used when I was younger. I I used that as a a kind of guide.
0: That ties in with a New York Times article written about you back in I guess 1992 so you would have been what about 22 at the time and it says how you're
1: gonna get my age out no one knows (laughs) what it is (laughs) I know
0: (laughs) so the New York Times wrote that you brought a burnished glow to ballet technique and that you transformed yourself on stage quote, from an ordinary looking young man to a sensuous performer who can seem both exotic and innocent. And that ties so much into who Diana Ross was. You <laughs> <laughs> must have been channeling her.
1: I, you know, I, I, we laugh right now, but um, yeah. Yeah.
0: So thinking back to that time of your life, you are a young dancer, a sensuous performer. You've got your whole career of dance ahead of you. What were some of the highlights from those early days?
1: All of it. The good and the bad. Uh, All of it. The traveling. My first trip on a plane was to Germany. What a way to go. (laughs) You're just like, okay, we're going to take this long flight performing outdoors in Germany. Italy, seeing you name it. And then there are performances that I was blessed to have where I could have an out of body experience where I can actually, quote unquote, see myself perform and sit back and get it and and really understand what that is. You know, that doesn't happen all the time. And Elliot has created some amazing things for me. And and we've created like there's a role that actually gave birth to one of my biggest ballets. It was created on me, but it was for someone else. So it was interesting being in a ballet and seeing two parts of myself. One was Cupid, and then the other part was the Seder.
0: Was that for the ballet Evo?
1: Uh, that gave birth to Evo. Mother Nature ended up giving birth to Evo, which was a, a turning point for me. You know, I mentioned Harbinger, that being Elliot's first ballet. My debut was that ballet, and it was the first movement. And I was the first student from the school to join the company. So that ballet had a lot of meaning in so many ways. And as you know, Harbinger means a bad omen. <laughs> so, you know, um, and that is why Elliot named it that. You look at it and you go, wow, it, it was just a perfect fit. It was a perfect fit.
0: And Evo is another ballet that he wrote later on that you performed in, in New York. You know, th- thinking about the times that we're in now and and how all the arts are so affected by COVID-19 and, and everything we're doing has to be in isolation. That dance, that ballet, when you were in Evo, you mostly had the stage to yourself. You were a solo dancer. Other people came on at times, but it was really all about about you. And I wonder, as a dancer... Is it a luxury to have the stage to yourself, or or do you feel like you're kind of missing limbs when there aren't other people around you? And and how does that speak to the time we're in now? Are we going to see more ballets that are solo performances?
1: That's a fantastic question. That was my life, you know. Like I, as I go back and and say, Harbinger starts off with me alone, and that's when I had that revelation that. Um, oh, wow, this is exactly right, what my teachers were talking about. When they say, everyone clear, Darren, places. Everyone's off the stage, it's just me. And I had to wait for the audience. That became the thing. And so for me, standing there, it's just me. The nerves kick in, (laughs) you know, all of that stuff, because you're like, okay, come on, let's go, let's go. And then, you know, to get back to your question, It's fantastic. It's, it's like nothing. If you can hold people's attention for eight minutes and it then becoming 16 minutes, you know for sure that you are an artist. You know, there's nothing to hide behind. And I will say this and, and my, my friends, because they all were like, they were like sisters to me in Evo. When they came on, they came on basically to let me catch my breath. That, and I didn't leave the stage. They just covered me. <laughs> that's all they did so that I could breathe so that I could then explode. And the breath was like maybe two seconds like it it really wasn't a lot of time but they were there to shield me and they you know there was a weaving section I never did the weaving part because I was half dead you know (laughs) because I had to dance with abandon so they did the weaving for me they made me look good because there was nothing left of me so I left that all on the stage and for that that's the best gift that you can get you know Do I miss people? Sometimes. (laughs) There were other dances, you know, other duets. Um, There's nothing I can say other than it's great. Now that we're forced to go and do these things on Zoom, it presents different challenges. The flattening, it's one thing being in the room. And I'm still trying to figure out what dance looks like when you're not in the same room because you miss hearing the breath you miss seeing what you want to see you're only looking at how much you can see based on where the camera is
0: so do you think dance exists at all in real life until there is some kind of vaccine is dance just on hold
1: well absolutely not um it all comes down to your passion and your love for what are you willing to do which takes you all the way back to when I was growing up what would you do to be in this company you know it's forcing us to go back in time how badly do you want this how badly are you going to work? Are you going to work on concrete? As a teacher, I am very wary about asking an entire class to jump on concrete because there's that one who really doesn't want to do it that, you know, then you're talking to the president (laughs) explaining why you're having them jump on concrete. But if that student that loves it, that's the one that's going to do it. And you don't have to ask them. They're just going to do it just because they love doing it. I would tell them not to, but they would, you know, which is always, that's what you want to do is tell them that you're doing it too much. I don't think that we can put dance on pause. It just makes it extremely difficult. And it really will weed out those who want to dance and those who just thought dance was just fun.
0: I mean, we're also in a time of recognition of systemic racism across all of the arts. And Broadway actors have been very vocal in saying that when life resumes, whatever the new normal is, a lot of changes need to be made. And I'm wondering how the world of ballet is facing those changes and what demands black ballet dancers are saying to theatre companies.
1: Have you noticed the silence? I don't mean to be uh, cheeky about it, but <laughs> let's be realistic. Yeah. And it also comes down to the amount. I This is why I love wearing multiple hats. You know, my theater colleagues, we speak up about these things and, you know, we notice these things. When you're in a company, there are a lot of things that, have been glossed over, the Me Too movement, a lot of things, the abuse that happens in dance companies, as well as the systemic racism that is prevalent there.
2: Hmm.
1: You know, it's better. And um, more companies are, you know, people are starting their own companies, which helps, but they're very silent. I have not heard many people talk about what's going on uh, over there, which is normal because, you know, again, dancers are taught to be quiet anyway. They have trouble speaking, which is funny because, you know, people call me a dancer and I'm like, no, I'm not a dancer. I'm more than that. I also speak. (laughs) I have no (laughs) problem speaking. And when I teach, it's the one thing I'll ask a question You know, I want you to feel comfortable to answer that question and not feel like you're someone's robot or doll or just do as I say and stand in the corner and and be plus. Don't move until I tell you to. If you ask a dancer to do that, a dancer will absolutely do that. But it's, it's how dancers have a very quiet way they don't really protest
0: so within the world of ballet as opposed to the world of theater but maybe they're the same thing where does change need to start like if you could put an action items list together for companies to-do list ballet companies to-do list Is it like the acting world where it's really we need people of color into management positions, into artistic director positions, not necessarily just on the stage, but behind the scenes, too? What would action items would you put on the list?
1: All of the above. You were the moment you said it. I was like, yes, (laughs) yes, (laughs) yes. Do you know that um, I didn't even know this? I was speaking with um, someone and I said, I had taught this young person at um, Texas state and he went on to tell me that I was his first black teacher and I knew it, but I, it never really sank in. I I didn't even think about it in all those years. And, um, and he, he's a, white male. And um, I went, oh, so there are a lot of students that don't know how to act or react to a person of color because they haven't been exposed to them in their worlds, believe it or not. So it comes right down to teachers. It comes down to administrative uh, workers. It comes down to the ballet mistress master. It comes down to the artistic director. It comes down to the choreographer. It is all of it. It even comes down to the person who lights you and takes your picture. There was a, a horrible story that I experienced where they couldn't light me in a group photo. And they were having difficulties lighting me and asked if they could substitute me for a white dancer. What? Uh, Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. And the one thing that, you know, Elliot wasn't just a mentor. He was very much a, a father figure. Elliot was very angry. Let's just put it that way. And he made it known that I am basically him. I make the decisions. I'm the ballet master. I am also one of the leads in there. You take the photo, you figure it out. You figure it out. And then there was a couple of words that I cannot say because he was notorious for (laughs) using cuss words.
0: His salty language. Yes,
1: (laughs) absolutely. Which um, it would crack me up. Because it would just fly out. And he had no problems calling you everything and anything under the sun. And this hit him really hard. And so that, for me, was the first time that I witnessed someone standing up and protecting me. Well, I should say second time. The first time happened to be on tour where uh, he told the entire company, because we were in the South that they were not to leave me alone, not to take their eyes off of me. When we went to a guest's home in the South and um, I could feel the tension, they gave me a fantastic compliment. But believe me, the compliment came, it was very difficult to get out. <laughs> you know, it was not, but they meant, The compliment, love the way I dance. But uh, you can definitely tell it wasn't easy for them to say.
0: (laughs) They being the house owners?
1: Yeah, the hosts of the party, yeah.
0: Did you feel scared in the South?
1: Uh, Yes and no. The no element is, again, my mother instilled fantastic survival skills that if at any point I felt uncomfortable I knew exactly what to do was it uneasy but it didn't hit the it's time to go yeah
0: thinking back to the the time that we're in now and the, all of these calls for change and and it appears that companies are performatively at least, starting to listen. But I I worry that the financial stress that all of the arts organizations, the performing arts organizations are under right now means that at a future date, when we're back in audiences and on the stage, that they're going to rush back to what they know puts butts in seats and puts cash in the bank. And there's going to be more Mamma Mia and more Oklahoma. How optimistic are you that? Real change is going to happen.
1: Well, I again, you asked the great. These are excellent question.
0: <laughs> I've been thinking about it a lot for a few weeks now.
1: <laughs> really fantastic, and you're absolutely right. Once it all dies down, I believe there are some people that will hope that everything goes back to normal, meaning they're normal, but. The cat's out, (laughs) you know. You can't put the genie back in the bottle. We have to move forward. And already the ensembles on Broadway has written the producers, the director, the choreographer on a show that is slated to start rehearsals next year. You have a white choreographer, you have a white... (laughs) Director, you have a white stage manager, you have six leads that are white. We are now here, and they go through the list. This is what we're fighting against. And we urge you to rethink either the selection or possibly updating it. Sincerely, the ensemble. (laughs) And I read that and I went and Times have changed because for a very long time, uh, as you know, in ballet, I was maybe the only one and, uh, there were some shows that I did where there were more like on the town. It was, uh, a diverse cast, which was great. It was m- much like growing up. But even with that diverse cast of On the Town, George C. Wolf took a lot of heat for that. And of course, when they had the revival and Misty Copeland came out and she played one of the leads, I was so happy that they were celebrating her, but they could have been celebrating our Ivy because she was also a person of color and a beautiful dancer, But instead, we were ripped apart. And, um, you know, of course, there was a problem with the fact that we didn't do Jerome Robbins' choreography. We actually had to break the mold for that to be okay. So again, that was another one of breaking down the doors so that later in time, it's not a big deal or an issue. But for us it you know it was brutal and of course um fossy which was extremely diverse so it was fantastic but he loved diversity in in people if you, you were talented and you could dance sing he loved
0: you which is really all it all it should be about
1: absolutely
0: is you know <laughs> the talent you bring to the table and the hard work and the dedication and the passion for the art form i think it's really telling i mean w- within you're thinking in the world of ballet and then there are the african american female dancers and the male dancers and it's telling that the first African-American male ballet dancer who was a principal dancer at the New York City Palais, Arthur Mitchell. Mitchell. That, was, that was 49 years ago. It was 1956. It wasn't, or rather, it was 49 years before the first African-American female dancer. That's right. Misty Copeland became the principal dancer with the American Ballet Theatre. So if you are a African-American female ballet dancer, the world is... Still 50 years behind where the African-American male dancers are. That's right. I mean, it's just, it's a tough world.
1: That's exactly right. And, you know, she's not the first African-American ballet dancer to be part of New York City Ballet. Misty Copeland. That's right. The first time that she came out and um, she made her debut in Snow, she was the first Snowflake. And I sat up in my seat and I went, okay. <laughs> <laughs> it was a feeling that um, I'll never forget it. I'll never forget. Um, and then the next gentleman, Albert Evans, we studied together at the New Ballet School one summer. He end, ended up being a principal for New York City Ballet. And again, That is, you know, you feel that sense of pride, but it's something that the three of us would just kind of share. And it's that loneliness that you have at the same time. But we really didn't talk about it. You try not to talk about it. You just go and do your job. (laughs) And you just try and make like everything is normal.
0: Do you feel like as a black male dancer, there have been a lot of opportunities that have been taken away from you.
1: What do you mean by that?
0: Well, that you audition for a position, you're the best answer there, and then they choose the white guy.
1: I have to be honest about this. That has not been my experience. And I will say that, especially for musical theater, because of my skill set, it didn't matter. People were like, I, I want him in the room, even though he's not right for the show because I looked too much like a dancer and they needed people to look like real people, (laughs) which is, you know, uh, you know, I get it. Like I kept hearing that even from Elliot, you don't look Real, you don't look like a person. Um, and then I heard it from George Wolf. You're, you're. He's like, you're so pretty, and 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 I didn't understand because I didn't think of myself like that. But it's that refinement, and it took me a while to kind of roughen the edges, roughen my edges, uh, so that I could. But I didn't. I personally, I have seen it. Right, I have seen it. But for me, remember, I had the. I was mentored to be a ballet master to take over the company, and I sat on a board. Then, you know, I became the dance captain, and then I became the resident director choreographer for these shows because of my ability to translate and then keep the integrity of the show. So my skill sets made me somewhat valuable, but I have seen it being behind the table. Yes, I have seen it. I just didn't feel that anything was taken away from me.
0: So we need more clones of you. We need more people <laughs> with your skill sets that are going to work on the management <laughs> side and and make change happen.
1: They're actually there. Like there's... a. Uh, A good friend of mine uh, who started to run Cirque du Soleil, they're there now and slowly but surely they're there. But even when you start to, um, you're running a program or you're the head of something, there's always someone in the way that uh, stops you from doing what you do really well, if that makes sense.
0: Well, and I think that as white audiences, that we have a responsibility too, to be asking for change to happen and to be saying, you know, our funding uh, depends on us seeing change. I'm not interested in seeing the same old, same old. I can see Oklahoma, Mamma Mia, in many places. I want to see a different kind of story being presented on the stages that I support. And it's, it's down to us too, to ask for change. Absolutely. What do you think you would have been if Elliot Feld had not turned up
1: in your <laughs> ten-year-old life? That question, too. I actually, uh, someone asked me that question many moons ago, and um,
0: has your answer changed?
1: <laughs> no, it's still the same. And I think it's something, and I can't remember who said it. Somehow, I would be where I am. It just may look a little different. Um, but somehow, I would be here. I you know, I tried to run away from it. I'll be be honest that sometimes it was a little too much for me. and I didn't quite understand why. and then I think when the change happened and everyone started to come out and march, you know, you're forced to relive. Uh, your past. And I was reading a lot of the things that my colleagues were going through and even things that we shared together that I had blocked out. And I said, now I understand why I wanted no part of this. And I kept being pulled back because I wasn't done. You know, it's like, you're not done yet. You still have to go to For example, Columbia, Missouri, because there are people who don't know who you are or what you can do, and they're just going to see you as a Black man, but wait until you start teaching and wait until you start doing this. And one day somebody might look at you and say, that could be me, and I'm doing what I did that I did in 1990, I'm still doing it now. And I'm like, I've done this. You know, I actually called my mom and said, I've done this already. And I'm still doing exactly the same thing. It's just decades later, but it's still the same thing.
0: But you're still getting joy out of it.
1: Absolutely. Uh, Right now I am. I have a different way of coping with it right now. I actually speak my mind, which I didn't do before. And I say what needs to be said, you know, I'll share this with you because I really do want people to hear this in college for musical theater programs and dance programs. It is really not useful for them to just choose the most talented African-American male, female, or an Asian and not have someone on faculty that looks like them. Because no matter what you do, you have no idea what it's like to be in the room and possibly be the only one. You have no idea what that experience is like. You also have no experience in something like Dreamgirls. You know, I saw a production of Dreamgirls and I said, there's a reason why you can't go outside of the casting. This needs to remain this way because it's part of history. This part of history. This is not just make-believe. And also, it took a lot to write a show for african-americans where they were all glamorous (laughs) so to replace them it defeats the purpose it's a little bit like hamilton you know when hamilton first came out and there were people who were offended because they couldn't audition for the role and i was like oh well welcome to our world (laughs) like <laughs> Now you understand what that's like for us when there are 25 shows and I can only audition for four of them. And if I'm not six feet, which I'm not, I can't audition for that one. So now I'm down to three.
0: What would be your, or maybe you've already been in it, what would be your dream production to bring to Columbia, say?
1: Oh, I don't know. That's a fantastic question. I don't know, because you would need the right people. All of the shows that I love, you need the perfect cast. You know, there's something about getting a cast together that um, it breathes life into it. And you're just like, wow, this is on a whole other planet. So I don't know. I hope that we can eventually find that here and do it here because there's some talented people here in Colombia.
0: Well, I am very glad that the fates of the universe wafted you towards Columbia and that you are now amongst us and creating awesome theatre here. My guest today has been Darren Gibson. He is the ballet master at Stevens College and artist-in-residence. And I wish you all the best for the upcoming semester, whatever that looks like.
1: (laughs) Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure.
0: Thank you, Darren. (laughs) Bye-bye. And from the world of ballet, our next stop this morning is the Columbia Art League and my good friend Kelsey Hammond. Good morning, Kelsey, aka Q2. Hello Q1, good morning. <laughs> I love being Q1 and <laughs> I love having you as Q2. You're very worthy thank you. Q2. <laughs> thank you, thank you. <laughs> So last time we spoke, you were on the cusp of receiving entries for the monochrome show, which is now gracing the Art League walls. So tell me a little bit about it. And I'm curious, were there
2: any surprises? Yes, actually, we had a few more three-dimensional wall pieces, if that makes sense. (laughs) So we had a couple of things that I think normally would maybe be worn or something where the artist actually made it to hang on the wall. So that's kind of interesting to have that play between wearable art, you know, sort of if there's a slash in there or not, (laughs) or maybe a a dash, I'm not sure. And uh, the interpretation of what monochrome means is always interesting. And I think that the juror did a good job of being a little loose with the terminology in recognition of what the artist was trying to do. So to kind of not fault the artist for making the, the image interesting while still maybe including a little bit of an extra color or something like that. So it looks really bright and happy in here. It's nice. You had said when we spoke, you were explaining that monochrome,
0: people automatically have a knee jerk like, oh, well, it's, you know, black and grayscale. Right, right. But that really monochrome covers any color in the spectrum as long as it's just that color and, and shades thereof. So were most people true to that?
2: Yeah, I think I mean I think that most people really tried to find find the inspiration within that confinement of the proposal for the show. But then the the artist kind of broke away from that, I think, did so in a way that was very conscientious and therefore adds to the power of the actual art piece, if that makes sense. So it doesn't feel sort of higgledy-piggledy, it feels intentional, which I think is always the sort of goal when you're making an artwork is that people don't think that you're just kind of flopping around.
0: So it describe one of the works that fits in that category.
2: Yeah, So, um, so one of them recreates the moon landing, and so it is you know, it's in space, right? There's not a lot of color happening out there in the world. But it does sort of, in the reflection of the helmet, you can kind of see a little bit of like an orangey glow, which would be from the image taker and or the spaceship, I guess. Sounds very very much like we're in Star Wars right now. (laughs) And then, you know, there's like a little bit of like a flag pin reflected in there. So there's like a little bit of extra color, but it's not like, and now there's orange, all of a sudden, it's just more like, little signifiers that let you know the historical significance of what the image is saying. So the overall piece is mostly grey and and black and white, but then it just has a little bit of subtle colour in there that gives it the reality that I think it needs to make it sort of a more three-dimensional space that you can walk into, if that makes sense.
0: Was there any particular colours that were dominant throughout the show?
2: I think blue, I think, I think the mon- the tr- sort of true monochrome of black and white gray is definitely represented well. And then I think blue really took over. We recently posted on our social media a little Rhapsody in Blue summary of the, of the artworks that arrived with all of their tones of blue. And I mean, for me, who grew up by the ocean, it's very tranquil and, and delightful to kind of live over in that part of the gallery. <laughs> it's really nice. Yeah.
0: Tell me a bit about the jurying and the curating process for this show.
2: Yeah, so the, the juror was Hannah Reeves, who, as we all know, runs Sagradis and is wonderful. And she she actually set up the show in the Roy G. Biv, so according to color. Meaning when she was jurying it, she walked in and she said you know me, so I'm going to arrange these by color. And I went, of course. And so um, so we put them all in. This is not how a normal jury goes. Normally the artists come and they set the work down, the juror walks in, and they just take each piece as it comes around the gallery. But she really was like, I feel the need to do this. So so we moved everything sort of by tone and color. But a lot of like the wood pieces moved into where the oranges and, and yellows would be because they're warmer. Mm-hmm. So we kind of looked at it that way. Or the Some of the things that are kind of read... One piece is sort of gray, but it has like a yellow undertone to it. So that got pulled into the warmer space. So there's some of those things. And then she made her final decisions as it was laying out in that way, which is, again, different than how a lot of jurors have done, have, do it in the past. They they all do it differently, though. Let's be honest. They're, they're all wonderful and kind of have bring their own experience and their own eye to it, you know. Um but so that was fun. So then we didn't know we would actually hang the show that way, but, but when we were looking at it more, it just <laughs> felt right. So, so when Taylor voice came in to actually hang the show, she made a few, few changes in how it was laid out by us on that day that we juried. So it's fun.
0: So as you walk through the gallery, you're going through red and then that abuts with the orange and that runs into yellow. So you kind of walk walk through the rainbow.
2: Yes. Which, of course, in our space, you know, it's got some little, you know, the little alcoves and things. So it doesn't feel quite so much like stripes, like on a flag, although that would be also (laughs) awesome. But it's more like you sort of wander, you're sort of, oh, I'm in a warmer area and you wander into the greens and you feel very... Um, it's very meditative and relaxing and then you skip around to the blues and you're feeling this tranquility and then there's sort of this bright deep purples that happen at the end and then as it goes into sort of these grays and more like the very last piece that I think of as sort of ending the show is just all white
1: mm-hmm. and
2: so you know if you can kind of let your eyes just sweep through the space you get that sense of how the color's moving and, and how the tone and the feeling really changes so it's interesting.
0: And then in the South Gallery, you have a new show called Mother Material, featuring works by Madeline Lemieux. Uh, tell us a little bit about that show.
2: Madeline is a an artist working at MU. She's a grad student right now. And, and a lot of us know her from having been the director of resident arts in Columbia. She's been spending time, you know, actually getting her master's in art making. And so this show, in particular, I think now that she 's had children, is really taking into consideration what it means to be an artist working as a mother. You know what are those two um, what are those two things doing for you as an artist you know how do How do you manage those two two things because art can be can be all consuming i think and and take over a lot of your life, and obviously, having children is a similar thing, so it's sort of finding that either connection between those two things and where they maybe deviate. And her work specifically is working with alternative processes for making art in in how I think of it, you know, and she's like fabricating things by stuffing fabric, and she's creating these soft sculptures that you can, that you really want to reach out and touch. And I think she's actually okay if you do that. And she's painting on things and she's using her cell phone to come up with the images for these works and really whatever's at her hand, which I think is important when you're a mother, you're sort of, <laughs> you're sort of like looking around you, what, what do I have to make art worth right, right now? And so she's really, I think, thinking about those um, time constraints. And what do I have handy? What, what can I make this with? And that's part of, I think, being a mom is figuring out what can I make out of this thing that I've got in front of me and keep moving through the day.
0: And she's going to be talking about that show on a Facebook live event with you
2: today, right? Yes, today. Yes, 4.30. So we just go to the Columbia Art League Facebook page. Correct. And we have an event there. So as you hear this, go to our page and click that you're going to the event and that way you'll get a notification that it's going live.
0: Okay. 4.30, Friday the 14th, a talk between Madeleine Lemieux and our very own Kelsey Hammond, aka Q2. Kelsey, thank you so much for dropping in. And I look forward to seeing monochrome and mother. Yes. Yes. (laughs) Bye. Bye. that is it for another week the arts bring such untold riches to our lives but if we want to see them survive and clearly if you're listening to this show then you do they need our support more now than ever all the speaking of the arts episodes are available as podcasts which you can hear at speakingofthearts.transistor.fm Or you can also connect through the KOPN website at kopn.org. Thank you to both my guests today for such an interesting hour and to guitarist Yasmin Williams for allowing me to play her song Restless Heart at the beginning and end of the show. You can find more of her music on Spotify and on her website at yasminwilliamsmusic.com. Finally, thank you so much for listening. I'll be back next week with more Peaks Behind the Arts Curtain. Until then, stay arty, Columbia!